You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. If we've not met before, my name is Craig, and I want to welcome you and say it's great, great to be together today. Thanks for joining us uh, in worship. I trust it's always a good Sunday to be here. But in, in some way, maybe this is uh, especially a good Sunday to be here because we're starting a new series, uh, a new study that will occupy us for months. So you'll be here to kind of get the introduction for it today. I hope this will serve you well. We're going to study the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, on the way in, I hope you grabbed one of these journals, uh, Ecclesiastes journals, Illuminated Scripture Journal. If you didn't do that, you can go get one now or you can grab one on your way out, whatever you prefer. Um, so this journal is, you know, it has the scripture on one page and then a blank page on the other. So we encourage you to bring this back each week. I mean, if you don't take digital notes, if you take analog notes, uh, bring this back each week and you can, you know, take notes in it. Uh, the other thing is that you can study throughout the week. So this, this time we did something different. We always do these journals when we go through a book, but this time we did something different and, uh, Caleb created a set of questions that are on the inside flap. We made a sticker out of it, applied those in there, and it's just some, some he adapted from a study tool uh, where you can, uh, it'll help you ask questions of the text. So you can also go through this during the week. It'll prepare you for the next Sunday, and you can jot your thoughts and your observations, or your applications, your prayers even, um, and you'll be uh, ready whenever you come on Sunday as well. At the end of the study, if you do that, you bring it the, during the weeks and do it, you know, uh, study and meditate during the week, you'll have a real, uh, a great tool to, to reference back of how God met you and what he spoke to you during this study. So that's part of that. We always have a commentary that we recommend. We're going through a book. Uh, I use a number of commentaries. We always recommend one and put it for sale. So this, this time we have a book out there called Living Life Backward uh, by David Gibson. This is not a traditional commentary. He doesn't cover every chapter of Ecclesiastes. He covers most of it. Uh, he is a scholar, so it is a commentary, but it reads like just a book. It reads like a book more than a commentary. Uh, this is one of the best books I read in 2022, maybe the best book for me personally that I read in 2022. Um, I actually gave this as Christmas gifts to Christians, and I gave this to some unbelievers at Christmas, because I think he asked such profound questions about life and the meaning of life that I thought it would serve even someone. So if you're here, you're not a Christian, um, this, would be, this would serve you well just to read this book and uh, begin to understand something about the Christmas, uh, the Christian faith. Now, I am stealing his title. Today's title is Learning to Live Life Backward. I was so affected by his book, I took his title and uh, you know, I don't suppose there's no royalties due on that, but there you go, using that title today. So I'm going to start by reading the first three verses, and then we will jump in. Ecclesiastes 1, verses 1 through 3, uh, listen to God's holy word. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? I read an analogy that I think is a helpful analogy as we launch into the book of Ecclesiastes. It's, it's this comparison. Um, 
if you drive, some of us aren't of driving age, but if you drive, um, you likely learn to drive and probably drive today uh, a car with an automatic, a truck with an automatic transmission. But if you've ever learned to drive a standard, a manual transmission, uh, can you remember the first time you learned to drive a stick shift after learning only to drive on an automatic uh, transmission? If you've done that, then you know learning to drive a standard transmission takes some real getting used to. And that's a little bit what the study of Ecclesiastes is like. If you have grown up reading and maybe hearing sermons uh, on, on books of the Bible that are automatic transmission, that's the Gospels, the letters of the New Testament, the stories that we read in the Old Testament. Those are familiar, perhaps, for your reading and for your study. But if you've never studied the book of Ecclesiastes, this is like getting in the car where you think you're familiar, but the rules are all different uh, because now it's a standard transmission with a stick shift. And so to drive that stick shift, you need to know some things about how it functions. And that's the goal of today's introductory sermon, to try to guide us through understanding some key things, three of which we just read, that will help us navigate and understand the book of Ecclesiastes. And here's the deal. Even once you kind of learn these basics of what the book is about and how to interpret, you're going to read and at times still find yourself letting out the clutch too fast, lunging the vehicle, and it stalls out. That's going to happen, but come the next Sunday, and we'll all try to figure it out together. Here are some, I'm going to share with you some sort of introductory comments about the book of Ecclesiastes before we jump in. A scholar who writes books for preachers to help them uh, know how to preach books of the Bible, a great scholar named uh, Sidney Gradanus. Uh, Gradanus says this about Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes may be the most difficult book to interpret and preach. Now, that's a sympathy quote. So each week you'll come in and feel sorry for me teaching the most difficult book of the Bible, but it'll also allow you to uh, hopefully lead you to pray for me. The book that I just held up and mentioned to you, Living Life Backward, David Gibson, this is what he says. In my opinion, part of the brilliance of Ecclesiastes is that it teaches us that life often slips through our fingers and eludes our comprehension by being itself elusive and perplexing. Is there a better way to explain how life can leave you scratching your head than by writing a book that leaves you doing the same? The message of the book is mirrored in the effect of the book. So he's saying life often is incomprehensible. And we scratch our heads and say, what's up? And he he says, isn't it brilliant that God would inspire an author to write a book that does the same thing on that subject? Bono, the lead singer of U2, not a scholar, but a smart guy. This is what Bono says. Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books. It's a book about a character who wants to find out why he's alive, why he was created, He tries knowledge, he tries wealth, he tries experience, he tries everything. You hurry to the end of the book to find out why, and it says, remember your creator. In a way, it's such a letdown, yet it isn't. That's very Ecclesiastes-like. Oh, that's the whole message, that's the letdown, but not really, that's everything. That's how Ecclesiastes works. Obano, very Ecclesiastes-like in his 
quote. One author, a scholar named Craig Bartholomew, said this, Ecclesiastes is a lot like an octopus. Just when you think you have all the tentacles under control, that is, you've understood the book, there's one waving about in the air. So he's saying reading Ecclesiastes is like grabbing an octopus. You've got all the tentacles. You've got them in control. And then this starts happening. And you go, well, maybe I don't have it all under control. One of the reasons that Ecclesiastes is challenging for us to read is because it's a different type of literature. It's a different genre of literature than we're familiar with. The the Bible, each book of the Bible is unique, and there are unique genres of literature. Uh, Ecclesiastes belongs to what we call wisdom literature. The other books of wisdom literature are Job, the book of Proverbs, and the book of Song of Songs. And these books don't function like a letter when Paul's writing, writing to Corinthians, or uh, it doesn't function like a narrative history in the Gospels, or uh, the life of David, or uh, the stories of, in Genesis of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It doesn't, it doesn't function like that. It functions differently. It uses wise sayings at points, Uh, We call those proverbs. It has wise sayings. It uses similes, comparisons. It uses metaphors, and untangling or decoding those metaphors, as we're going to see in a minute, is really a key to uh, understanding what the writer is talking about. Um, It even uses poetry to teach, and at times, at least in the book of Song of Songs, even songs to teach. So it's a different kind of literature. It's not as straightforward. It's not just grab it by the surface. You're just kind of laying out the facts for us. It doesn't function that way. So some of you who love poetry and that sort of thing love to, you know, see the message behind the words or the picture, uh, you're going to love this. It also reads more philosophically, way more philosophically than the other books of the Bible. So those who like philosophy, you're going to like this book. It doesn't It doesn't give us Israel's history. So the book of Ecclesiastes is not referring to what almost the entire Old Testament refers to. It doesn't talk about covenants. doesn't talk about kings other than the author. doesn't talk about the temple. doesn't talk about temple worship and sacrifices. doesn't really talk about the expected Messiah. Uh, Jesus is in every book. He's the hero of the story. But on the surface, you you don't even pick that up quite so clearly. It just makes observations. Ecclesiastes just makes observations about the world and then makes comments about how we are to live in God's world while half the time sounding unorthodox. I mean, we just read something that sounds very unorthodox. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Not a very encouraging introduction to a a book, rather hopeless sounding on the surface, isn't it? But, but this is how Ecclesiastes functions. Later in the first chapter, the author's going to tell us that life is, quote, an unhappy business, unquote, that God has just given us. An unhappy business. He ends the first chapter, and, and you have it there in your lap, you can look at it. He ends the first chapter with this line, he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The more you know, About this world, the sadder you are. Now, this kind of language that I'm reading you, it's all vanity. More knowledge just means more sorrow. First chapter, he also says, life is just striving after wind. It's impossible to harness and catch the wind, just striving after wind. 
And when you read these kind of phrases, it's not just you've only driven an automatic and now you're learning to drive a stick. It's you're learning to drive a stick for the first time on a narrow road in London on the opposite side of the street. I mean, it's all, it's, we don't have any grid for how to, how to deal with these kinds of teachings in the Bible. Ecclesiastes is disorienting for happy, clappy American Christians because we don't have the language. We don't have permission to talk like this openly. We've got to put up a front. Like, life is great. I'm a believer. Everything is okay. And we need to see the dearth uh, in our own vocabulary, in our own honesty, in our own transparency of communicating what life really feels like for us sometimes or much of the time. And Ecclesiastes does that. You see, in the church, we don't process, well, not all church traditions. The black church does this well. But most church traditions, Western church traditions, we don't know how to process lament. We don't know how to do it. You start lamenting, a third of the Psalms are lament, complaining to God. You start complaining to God for the way things are going publicly here. People are like, wow, is, he, is she even a Christian? Why is he talking like that? We don't know how to speak openly among other Christians very well about uh, the discouragements of our mundane life. Over and over the same stuff, it's so draining and discouraging. We don't know how to talk about that with people. We don't know how to, how to talk about our regrets as we get older. This author's got some regrets. We don't know how to talk about that openly, that admission of regrets. We don't know how to be honest and say, many of the things that I am pursuing, many of my life pursuits are just leaving me empty. That's what Ecclesiastes says in every chapter. Ecclesiastes is real talk about the emptiness that we feel in life so often. So Ecclesiastes is really the most modern book in the Bible. It reads for today's culture so well. It uses all kinds of non-religious language, and it speaks in terms that we can all relate to, as long as we can interpret a metaphor here and a saying there and a poetry verse over there. When we decided on our annual theme this year, which is to reach and equip the next generation, immediately I thought we got to do Ecclesiastes. Because if you're in Gen Z or the new gen, I guess if you're in sixth grade, you're in here, uh, you're Gen A, they're calling you. Or if you're a younger millennial, young to mid-millennial perhaps, then this is the culture that you've grown up in. And this is the air that you breathe. Uh, fear, worry, anxiety, depression, emptiness. These are the words of Ecclesiastes. So uh, I think it speaks very clearly to today's youth. It also speaks to anyone who, who sort of lives that way. It's not only for people who love poetry and philosophy. Ecclesiastes is for all of the Eeyores in Grace Church. You're an Eeyore. This is your book. I'm just going to say turn to Eeyore chapter 3 verse 2, okay? This is your book. And while most of us, immediately when we have a depressive thought, we think it immediately must be treated, and we've got to get rid of it. I need to get spiritual counseling. I need to fix this feeling. from a, Give me a Bible verse that will fix this feeling. Well, don't go to Ecclesiastes, but give me a Bible verse that will fix this feeling. Give me a prayer. We want to treat a depressive thought immediately through Scripture, through counseling, maybe, maybe through medical means. 
And yet so much of the Bible is people just living and sort of sitting in the pain of life and reacting and responding to God in that way, learning how to interact with God. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to treat depression. Of course not. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying let's recognize the propensity to be so shallow as Christians that if it's not happy 24-7, if it's not clap, 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 and joy, and um, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart, if it's not that way all the time, just realize that's not how life works, that life has moments and stretches along the road, miles along the road at times, when our hearts, when we're dealing with what life is like in a broken world, when we can't understand it and we can't figure it out, and we don't even like it. This book speaks right into that. Well, let's talk about the author. He calls himself the preacher, verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The word translated, the Hebrew word translated preacher is koaleth. I don't pop off with Hebrew and Greek words very often in the pulpit, but this one I want to give you, koaleth, because if you do any reading on uh, Ecclesiastes, you'll often find authors calling the author that. So let's say koaleth says, and you go, what are you talking about? Well, that's the word translated preacher here. If you take the Hebrew word koaleth and you translate it into Greek, you get Ecclesiastes. So Ecclesiastes is a person. He is koaleth. He is Ecclesiastes, he is the preacher, the NIV calls him the teacher. That's the person who wrote the book. And historically, it's been assumed that Koaleth is um, Solomon. It says here that he is, verse 1, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So if he's the literal son of David, uh, and he served as king, that would, of course, be Solomon. The other thing is that much of Ecclesiastes is autobiographical in nature, And we frequently find that the story of Ecclesiastes maps onto the story of Solomon perfectly. I mean, this guy who writes the book, he chases big-time wine, women, and song. He chases knowledge. He has power. He has wealth. And so it really, it matches on to the wise King Solomon. There are some reasons that even conservative biblical scholars don't think it was Solomon. I'm not going to get into all those. Uh, it's not a debate, it's not worth entering the debate as far as I'm concerned, but I think it's certainly safe to say it, it, it appears to be Solomon, but we'll usually just call him the preacher or the teacher because that's how he refers to himself. The word Solomon, he doesn't refer to himself as Solomon. Well, having looked at the genre, wisdom literature, and the author, the preacher, Koaleth, Uh, likely Solomon. I want to talk about four keys to understanding this book. So normally we walk through a passage of scripture here as we work through it, but today I'm going to give you four keys uh, that will help us understand the entire book. They're from the first three verses that we read, and then the fourth key comes later in the book. That These are key concepts, four key concepts. So if you're learning to drive a standard uh, and you've only driven driven an automatic, then there's like four things, right? You've got the steering wheel, you got the gear shift, you got the clutch, you got the gas, and so you got to maneuver those four together. You got to make the dance work to drive the car. Well, these four things, uh, maneuvering these, understanding these together, will really give us a clearer picture of what Ecclesiastes is talking about. The first key concept is to understand vanity. Vanity. Verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The word vanity is used 38 times in this book. 
And so we've got to understand this word to understand the book. Uh, the word is hebel. Uh, the, Greek, uh, the Hebrew word is hebel. And I'm giving you that word because we're going to see how it's translated in a couple of different instances in the Old Testament. But hebel literally means breath or vapor. So it's a, it's a metaphor that needs unpacking. Breath of breath, what, is, what does that mean? It's a metaphor that means unpacking. It, it means breath, when we look at how it's used elsewhere, it means breath in the sense of something that is brief, something that is fleeting. If you went outside this last week, some of you didn't, some of you were indoors for four days straight, right? Uh, well, there's a world outside of Netflix, here we are. So some of us, that's where we were for four days. But if you went outside in the middle of this week and you breathed into the 25-degree air, you saw your breath come out, and it was visible as uh, you could see your breath. It was a mist, a vapor there that was just there for a second. That's the idea. It means something that is very temporary. It's your breath on a frozen day. James uses this same concept in the New Testament. He doesn't use the word hebel. But James, in the New Testament, in chapter 4, uses the same concept. He says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So James is totally going Ecclesiastes right there. Your life is just a mist. It's only here for a minute, and then it's gone. That's what James says. I hear some passages where the same word is used elsewhere that, that carries this idea of fleeting or temporary. Um, Psalm 144, 3 and 4 says this, O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a hebel, a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Do you see what he's saying there? His, 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 his life is a breath. He is a breath. His days are passing. Same thing James says. Or in the NIV, Proverbs 31 makes this statement. Charm is deceitful and beauty is hebel. What does it mean? Charm is deceitful. It means uh, everything isn't always the way it appears on the surface when you get to know this person. Okay, charm can be very deceitful. And beauty is fleeting. Ask any old person. Ask me. Okay, it is fleeting. Uh, it is all moving fast. And so you go, hey, beauty is not something that you want to uh, root your heart in because beauty is very temporary, external beauty. Internal beauty, the beauty of the heart, well, that's eternal and glorious. But external beauty is fleeting as we get older. One, one author just summarized or kind of paraphrased verse 2, breath of breaths, everything is temporary. That's what it means. Breath of breaths, everything is temporary. And so Ecclesiastes is a meditation on living aware of life's brevity. We're going to see that very clearly in a minute. But it, it's, it's a meditation on living your life aware of how short it is. But Hebel means more than fleeting. If you went out on Wednesday and breathed and saw the, your breath materialize uh, in the air before you and you tried to grab it and hold on to it, put it in a bag, that's Hebel as well. Because Hebel means elusive. It's something that's fleeting, but something that is elusive. If life is a puff of smoke, 
If life is a momentary mist, your attempts to grasp life, that's futile. It's like grasping a vapor. It's like grasping a mist. It's futile. You can't grip it. You can't control it. You can't wrestle it down and maneuver it the way you want. Life doesn't work that way, the preacher tells us. He, he's uh, he's going to talk about this vanity throughout the book, the momentary, ungraspable, fleeting nature of our lives. Now, the, the NIV translates the word meaningless, and that, that can be misunderstood. Um, if, if by meaningless we mean trying to chase and wrestle down your breath or a mist in the air, that that's a meaningless task, that, that, that would be accurate. But most scholars say that it doesn't mean that life has no meaning. I mean, throughout, there'll be places where the preacher's clear, life has meaning. He, he, this isn't nihilism. He's not saying that there is no meaning uh, at all. If there's a God there's a, and a creator, there's a meaning to our lives. Uh, what he means is that smoke and breath and vapor eludes our grasp. Life isn't pointless, but our attempts to control and command life, our attempts to direct life, our attempts to script life in the way that we want it to go, oh, that's pointless. That's a meaningless endeavor. You'll never be able to do that. Our lives aren't pointless, but seeking to control them certainly is. Um, As life passes us by, we can't master it or restrain it. We are inevitably moving toward the day of our death and the day that we stand in judgment before God. So vanity ties into this, the brief brevity of life, this metaphor of breath. This ties in to the idea that life is short, and we're going to see that's, that's to instruct us how we live. The second concept that's throughout the book is gain. Do you see that? Verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. The preacher's not asking you to answer that question. The answer is assumed. Nothing. That's what he's saying. What do we gain by all this toil under the sun? Nothing. The idea of gain shows up throughout the book. The preacher chases. He's looking for gain. He chases wisdom and wealth, sex and power and pleasure, and he finds that in all his pursuits there is no gain. And so he really teaches us that when we chase work and money and knowledge and pleasure, we chase those things to use those things to make us happy, we end up empty. If we try to gain meaning, if we try to gain purpose, if we try to gain joy through those pursuits, it is futile. At the end of our lives, we die and we'll ask, what do we have to gain for all of our effort? Ecclesiastes describes how we easily make idols out of created things. So we grasp money, or we try to gain position, or we seek after pleasure, or we crave honor, or we are all about finding our identity in achievement. And when we do, we find out that all of those things just slip through our hands and we hold nothing. 
Ecclesiastes wants to teach us that if we look instead to God, we can receive what he provides as a gift, and that is where we find joy. The book is going to contrast sort of grasping all our toil to try to gain, hold on to, earn. It's going to say grasping equals nothing, but receiving equals joy. When we don't take the things God gives and try to make our life or find our life in them, yet we seek to try to find our life in God and receive what he provides, then we find joy. One author summarized the book with this phrase, which I intend to use throughout. Life is gift, not gain. Life is a gift from the Lord, and the Lord gives it to us to steward for his glory. The things of life aren't things that I grasp onto to gain, to propel myself forward, to find my identity, to find my worth, to find my value, to find my joy, to find my life purpose in what I grasp onto and gain. That is not what life is about. It's about receiving the Lord's gift and enjoying them not trying to find our identity through them. So, for instance, God gives work as a gift. You see it in the garden with Adam and Eve. Work is a gift. The difficulty of work is the result of the curse. But work is not a curse. It's a gift from God. But if you try to find your value and your identity and your meaning and your purpose through a gift of God, if you make work your God, then you will find you have nothing to show for your toil. There is nothing. There is no gain. It's empty because you weren't created to find your identity in that. Sex is a gift from God. But when you treat sex as the source of where you're going to find your ultimate joy, that pursuit is going to define your ultimate joy or your meaning. Well, you're going to end up empty because sex is a wonderful gift from God when experienced in the the context that he created it for. Sex is a wonderful gift, but it is a terrible God that will leave you empty. Food is a gift from the Lord to nourish us and at times to feast and celebrate. But if you try to find your comfort, we even have a name for it, comfort food. If you try to find your comfort, when you take the emptiness of your life and try to fill it up with food, well, that gluttony will leave you with nothing. So-called stress eating never alleviates the stress the next day. Just makes a bigger number on the scales, but it doesn't, doesn't answer the problem. And so food is a gift. You enjoy it as a gift from the Lord. But if you're trying to find your comfort in it, it's, it's a striving. It's a toiling. It'll leave you empty. I want to read you a couple of verses that show how this works out in the book. So in chapter 2, verse 24, you, you have it there, so you can turn forward to it. Uh, 2.24, this is how gain and gift or, uh, uh, compete in, in, or at odds, I guess I should say, in the book. 2.24, there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give it to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So you see, hey, to receive, eat, uh, food and drink, uh, enjoyment in our work, that's the gift of God. 
But for the person that doesn't know God, that is trying to chase, uh, you know, he's given the business of gathering and collecting. I'm going to find my life, and what I gather and collect, that person will just leave what they gathered and collect to someone else. Uh, Chapter 3, verses 12, chapter 3, verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Life is not gain. You're not gathering and collecting so that you find life in what you do. You find life in God, knowing God, experiencing all that he gives as a gift, and enjoy, stewarding what he gives and enjoying it. So gain. There's nothing to gain. We're going to see that throughout the book. The, the, the next one, the third one, is this phrase, under the sun. See verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? There's a couple ways to understand this phrase, under the sun. And I've actually changed my understanding on it. When I've thought about this or even taught on it uh, before, I have a different view than what I've said previously. Under the sun, not a wrong view, but I think a different view than what is meant by this phrase. Um, not a heretical view, but just a different take on it. So there's a couple ways to think. This is how I've historically thought, that under the sun is spatial. There's life under the sun, there's life over the sun. So under the sun is life without God. It's empty, meaningless, uh, drudgery, etc. Life over the sun is life knowing God. So the person who knows God has meaning, that's above the sun. person who lives under the sun uh, doesn't have uh, meaning in their life, doesn't know God, the person who doesn't know God. Uh, so there is some distinction between believer and unbeliever in Ecclesiastes for sure. But I don't think that's the main idea of that phrase. I don't think it's a spatial term. I think it's a temporal term. The sun marks time. And so under the sun means the time in which we live. When he says this is life uh, toiling under the sun, it means in the, in the world we live in, in the fallen world, in this temporary world, this is life under the sun. This is just what life is like under the sun. There's coming a day, so there's this age and there's the age to come. There's coming a day when Christ will come and usher in the new heaven and new earth and there will be no sun. The Old Testament says that, uh, I mean, sorry, the book of Revelation says that Jesus is the light, that in the new heaven and earth there is no sun, that he, the glory emanating off his being is the light. And so under the sun means the age we live in, the time we live in. This is what life is like. But one day after our death in the new creation, it will be different. Life in a temporal fallen world is under the sun. So following Jesus doesn't remove us from all of the under the sun existence. Now, he does give us a new power. The Holy Spirit indwells us. He does change us. Uh, We do have a different outlook and a different calling and mission in our lives. So becoming a Christian makes a radical difference in what your life is like. But it doesn't take you out from the temporal existence of a fallen world. Christians live under the sun as well. And we will experience uh, for seasons or times in our life, the same angst that Solomon speaks of here. Ecclesiastes gives us permission to acknowledge the burden of the world in which we live. And more than that, more than acknowledging, it gives us words to express the pain that we often feel in this breath-like, fleeting, ungraspable, under-the-sun existence that we all share. We've talked about how once uh, Christ Christ has come, 
and that now the kingdom is already here, but it's not yet here in its fullness. And so we've talked about living in the already and the not yet. We're not yet in the new heaven and new earth. The book of Ecclesiastes is all about the not yet. It's saying, here's what life is like, still remains like, even for a believer. The last point, after vanity, gain, and under the sun, if we understand those phrases, it's going to help us through the whole book. The last thing is how the book ends. Uh, So if you go to chapter 12, this is really telling, because at the end, uh, he tells us what the the whole point of the book. And so just spoiler alert, we're going to get it out right now because it's going to help us study the whole uh, book. Uh, Here it is, verse 9 in chapter 12. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught that people knowledge, uh, taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh." Students, you cannot use that verse when your parents tell you to go do your homework. You cannot. That's out of context, okay? Uh, so I wouldn't recommend that. Verse, verse 13. Here it is. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or ill. Say, so this is the whole thing. This is the whole thing. The whole book is pointing us to death. The whole book is saying, you will die. That's why we're we're hearing about fleeting in the first, second verse of the Bible, of the book. We're hearing life is fleeting. You will die. Uh, And then you will be judged by God. The preacher, we're going to see, he experiences everything in life. All the pleasures, all the wisdom of life. He, He has more wisdom than any of us. And he says, here's the end of it all, fear God and obey his commandments. Why fear? Why obey? Well, he tells us, because God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, judgment's not a popular topic. We don't want to hear about death. We don't want to hear about judgment. Just let's all think happy thoughts, okay? But but judgment's not, it's, it's a bad topic if you don't know Jesus Christ. But if you're in Christ, judgment is... Not a fearful thing uh, for us because if there is a God and there is a judgment, that's a good thing. If there is no God and there's no judgment, then everything is meaningless. But if there is God and every sequel to be revealed, that God judges our lives, then everything matters. Everything matters. That is good news. A judgment's not fearful for us. Uh, our judgment has been moved in many ways from the future to the past, because Jesus took our judgment on the cross. He died in our place. He bore our sins as a believer. And so you've already been declared, that's judgment, you've already been declared righteous before God. But that doesn't mean that we still aren't to honor him and glorify him with our lives. And so because there's judgment, everything matters. The preacher is saying, you will die, you will give an account, let that direct how you live today. That's the point. That's the point of the book. Breath, breath, everything is temporary. Everything's temporary. So look at the end result, your death and your judgment, and as a wise person, allow that to drive how you live 
today. Don't try to grasp life for your own gain. Don't try to find your meaning and your purpose in the things of your life. Rather, seek to find them in God. Fear the Lord, he says. That, that means to, the, the proverb says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord, he's not saying as a Christian you're to fear God's going to harm you. He's saying live with with awe before God. Live aware of his holiness. Be, live amazed by God. Living in the fear of, the God, in fear of God means that God is the focal point of your life. No one is more glorious and wonderful than God. He is your focal point. He is your pur- purpose. Fear God. Don't act like there's no death coming. Don't act like there's no judgment coming. That's the life of the fool. Don't find your life in what you can produce and what you can gain. Find your life in him. Receive his good gifts and seek to faithfully steward them, living a faithful life in obedience to God, accomplishing what God wants you to accomplish in your life. That we realize that life is brief and elusive. We realize that. But in Christ, life is eternal and certain. Trust God. Here's what I really think the book is telling us. Live with God as your focus. Follow his word, knowing that one day he will make everything right. And in the meantime, enjoy your life. Enjoy the simple things God provides, because that is the very gift of God. And the ability to enjoy the things he provides, he says, that is the gift of God. Life is gift, not gain. So how do we apply this? Well, I think we seek to embrace the perspective on life that the preacher gives. Live today in light of your future death and judgment. Well, that sounds scary, but not very practical. So how do I make that practical? Here's how you make that practical. Given that your life is short and fleeting, and the older you get, I know everybody said this, I'm just give me, give me a moment here. Let me be grandpa for a second. Uh, I know they say the older you get, the faster it moves. It's true. Ask anybody who's not a teenager in the room. I'll tell you, it moves fast. And so knowing that we are approaching our death and the judgment of God, if that's the truth, given our end, what should you do today? That's the question. What relationship in your life needs attention today? given your future. In light of the fact you'll give an account to God, what relationship needs attention? What sin in your life, hidden sin, known sin, what sin needs to be confessed and repented of today? What simple blessing has God given you that you should enjoy and return to him with thanks for today? The blessings of God in this book are the blessings of Eden. He's going to say, enjoy eating, enjoy drinking, enjoy your work. He's going to say, enjoy your wife. What did they do in Eden? What happened in the Garden of Eden? They worked. They made love. They had conversation. uh, They enjoyed God. Now, they had a mission to expand Eden into the world. But it was the simple things that they were called to do. We're called back to the Eden life to enjoy what God provides for his glory. So what do I need to thank the Lord for? What do I need to enjoy that I'm taking for granted? Starting with lunch today. What have I taken for granted that God wants me to begin to enjoy my life by thanking him? So live the, 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 this point of view that the future is 
coming. I, I, I love this quote. I'm going to share something with you. We're about done. From uh, David Gibson, the book that's out there that we recommended. This is what he says. This is so helpful. Ecclesiastes teaches us to live life backward. It encourages us to take the one thing in the future that is certain, our death, and work backward from that point into all the details and decisions and heartaches of our lives and to think about them from the perspective of the end. It is the destination that makes sense of the journey. If we know for sure where we are heading, then we can know for sure what we need to do before we get there. Ecclesiastes invites us to let the end sculpt our priorities and goals. I love that language, sculpt. It's it's an art. Let the end sculpt our priorities and goals, our great ambitions, and our strongest desires. I want to persuade you that only if you prepare to die can you really learn how to live. How hopeful is that? Other thing you can do to apply it is you can read, the, read it, take notes, write down your thoughts, pray, and we'll come each Sunday and, and uh, try to figure it out uh, together so that we can all experience God's joy uh, in this fleeting life. Uh, we're going to close today by focusing uh, on communion and particularly focusing on Christ. The band can join me. Uh, particularly focusing on what he has done for us because Jesus, while we still live under the sun, uh, with a certain hope of eternity in the future. We, we definitely experience so much in Christ, forgiveness of our sins, meaning and purpose for our life. And we do that because Jesus lived under the sun for us. I'm going to read you a quote. We'll be done here. Uh, this is a quote from an author named Sean O'Donnell. He's a commentator. This is what he says. Jesus Christ redeemed us from the vanity that Pastor Solomon so wrestled with and suffered under by, this is what Jesus did, by subjecting himself, Jesus subjected himself to our temporary, meaningless, futile, incomprehensible, incongruous, absurd, smoke curling up into the air, mere breath, vain life. Jesus subjected himself to that. He was born under the sun. He toiled under the sun. He suffered under the sun. He died under the sun. But In his subjection to the curse of death, by his own death on the cross, this Son of God redeemed us from the curse. By his resurrection, he restored meaning to our toil. And by his return, he will exact every injustice and elucidate every absurdity as he ushers those who fear the Lord into the glorious presence of our all-wise, never completely comprehensible God. Yes, Jesus came and took our place. He lived under the sun for us. He toiled, and yet he always obeyed his Father. And at the end of his life, he died for us. That was the purpose of his coming. He always lived with his end in sight. His end, his death, and his resurrection, that was the focus of his life and his call and his mission. And because he did that, we too today can know God we too can experience forgiveness. We can experience life and we can experience joy in simple things like eating and drinking. Today we're coming to the Lord's table to eat and drink the most joyous occasion possible. The body and blood of Christ to celebrate what he's done for us. So let's stand together. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. 
To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.